as I I'm sure you suspect, beloved listeners, my grasp of economics is on a par with my comprehension of theology, so I approach the next story with some trepidation. But fortunately, I have the most distinguished panel to guide me, and I'll introduce them to you shortly. Labor will hand down its first budget on uh, October 25, and ahead of that, the Australia Institute is holding a revenue summit this very week to look at the challenge of where the money will come from when the the demand for public services is growing and challenges like climate change, providing better aged care, improving childcare, lifting people out of poverty will all require more of it. So who's going to pay for it and how will our social welfare services cope? Now, historically, reform has largely involved outsourcing service delivery to private markets but a long list of royal commissions and public inquiries has revealed significant failures in the system that are supposed to care for us in our times of need. Daniel Molino is a federal Labor MP. Daniel's the member for Fraser in Victoria. He has a PhD in economics from Yale, and he says it's time we reimagined how our whole welfare system works. He's outlined his ideas in his first book called Safety Net, The Future of Welfare in Australia. Daniel's in our Melbourne studio and sitting next to him is someone who's also turned a critical eye to how well our welfare system is holding up. Mark Considine is Professor of Political Science at the University of Melbourne and his new book is called The Careless State, Reforming Australia's Social Services. Also in Melbourne, our third guest, a woman with direct experience of navigating the welfare system and the NDIS. Kristen O'Connell is an unwaged worker living below the poverty line on the disability support pension. She's also the founder of the Anti-Poverty Centre, where she's a researcher and policy advocate. And I'm going to start with you first, Christian. What's it like for you to live on the disability support pension? I understand it's uh, about $900 per fortnight. Thank you, Philip. Uh, Yes, I don't think it will surprise your listeners to hear that surviving in the parts of the welfare system that are designed to support disabled folks and low-income people and unemployed people is deeply traumatising. I grew up in a single parent household with my mum trying to raise three kids on Centrelink. I've been lucky to have really well-paid jobs in my adult life, but I can't sustain paid work. And being on the DSP, I know I'm very lucky to have a slightly higher income than folks on the job seeker payment, but it is totally unlivable. The system is killing people and it's harming me and it's harming everyone I know who has to rely on it. And you also have to deal with the NDIS. Yes, that's right. Another very overwhelming system to try and navigate a system that seems designed to get in your way of accessing support and designed to punish you not quite as much as the social security payments, but uh, it's really, really, again, it feels like there are a lot of roadblocks in your way when you're trying to actually get the support that you need. Well, given your experience, your personal experience and your research, what needs to change? 
Oh, I think uh, we need to start from scratch. Uh, the NDIS exists for very good reasons, and that is that the services previously being delivered by governments were not working for people. But I don't think that privatisation was the right way to take it. Um, and we do see that there are some people, some organisations, uh, exploiting that system and structure. I think we need to really try and imagine what it might look like if we had a truly supportive um, public offering for disabled folks. Um, in terms of the welfare payments, they just absolutely need to urgently go above the best but inadequate measure of poverty we have, which is the Henderson Poverty Line. And then we really want to do deep work with government to develop a much more sophisticated measure of poverty that's fit for purpose in the 21st century. Daniel, welcome to the Little Wireless Program. Your book traverses the whole history of welfare payments around the world. But let's start with the definition of the scope because it, there's more to it than the dole. Exactly. And I think when you look at the welfare state uh, in its entirety you realise that the bulk of welfare spending and social insurance spending in Australia, I think, occurs in areas that people don't necessarily even think about uh, as being part of the welfare state, the health system, the retirement income system. And for me, that was important because it, it helps one to think about the way in which the, the welfare system works. I think you can look at the welfare system at a very high level through three prisms. Uh, one is universal service, uh, another is redistribution, and a third is risk management and insurance. And all of these are very important, and I, I try to stress this in the book. And they're usually aligned and, and consistent with each other. But I do think on occasions there's a tension between them. And what I try to explore in the book is that when you look at the welfare state in its very long history, going way back to societies that relied upon the harvest or the hunt, people shared their resources and helped people who, through no fault of their own, fell on tough times. Many modern welfare state institutions, I would argue, arose from insurance schemes that better government regulation and funding then supported. And it's really that framework, I think, that is the most useful one to think about our major institutions. Daniel, we'll uh, come back to you and you can talk us through it a little later. But, Daniel, you've heard Christian uh, set out the challenges facing our welfare system from her perspective. What do you want to add to that? Oh, well, look, Christian's observations on living in our current uh, welfare system are very compelling and uh, important. And, indeed, I talk to a lot of people from my own electorate, which is in Melbourne's western suburbs, who talk about very similar experiences. So I, I start from the position that those are very important observations. I would also say that it's important for us to start with those observations of people's real experiences, but also to look at our welfare system uh, at a macro level and to acknowledge that it's facing a number of long-term uh, threats. Uh, we have an ageing society. We have a number of scope pressures and cost pressures. A, lo a lot of the largest elements of the welfare state uh, are increasing uh, faster than CPI. And we also have a budget that is uh, straining. And so for me, it's a question of how can governments most uh, sensibly and, and justly square that circle, if you will, and provide the appropriate services given all of those uh, macro challenges. Daniel, if we go back a century to the 1920s, the welfare state accounted for about 2% of GDP. These days, it's what? More than half of all government spending. Exactly. And someone like Paul Krugman describes the post-World War II US government as a vast insurance scheme, which happens to employ a standing army. And uh, so 
the, the way I think about it is uh, that universal service is incredibly important. Uh, for example, the vaccination programs, childcare, there's many areas where universal service is the right approach. There, redistribution is critical, for example, in the way we fund our welfare state through progressive taxes. My concern is that occasionally the redistributive lens can get us into a very us and them mindset, which I don't think uh, is helpful. So uh, previous governments have talked about lifters and leaners. We have in other countries people talking about makers and takers and strivers and skivers. I think it's much more healthy and actually accurate to talk about the welfare state as something that any of us could be drawing from at any point in time. And that's where I think the insurance frame comes in, where you think about it as society pooling resources and people drawing on those, whether it be through welfare payments, uh, whether it be through the health system, whether it be uh, when in retirement, drawing on it uh, as needed. And, and finally, I think it's really important to think about it in that insurance frame, because I think that's the best way to help people with the most complex and long-lasting problems. Now to you, Mark, if we could bring you in, because your book, The Careless State, has a look at the systems we're talking about here, specifically those which have already moved to a market services model. Can you give us an overview of what you found? Indeed, Philip. So I look at the big um, market service uh, innovations, basically from childcare through to aged care and everything in between, including the NDIS. And then I compare two other social services that haven't gone down that path. And the, the broad thrust of the book is to show that that service market model, that great innovation of 20 or 30 years ago, is now pretty much exhausted. It's, it's no longer delivering the innovation that we need, and it's actually producing a lot of dysfunctions, not just major fraud, which we're seeing in all of those systems, but a real lack of, of innovative work to, to lift the standard of, of services. And this is really following Daniel's point, it's really taking a more holistic view of, of what society expects from social services, not, not only how they're funded, but how they're delivered so that people get really high quality uh, support. Now, the focus of reform in the welfare system so far has been using market arrangements. So government is paying for the program, but uh, getting private operators to deliver them with the premise being that people are more individual service and some choice. Mark, how real is that choice? So it can be very real if the if the service user is well-informed, has plenty of personal resources themselves to go out, for example, and search and compare different uh, residential aged care options and the like. But the minute you're talking about people who are um, disadvantaged or who are in parts of the country where there isn't a great menu of uh, different service offerings, then you actually increase people's vulnerability, put them at the mercy of unscrupulous providers and give government a tremendous headache in how to regulate uh, what in some cases are hundreds or even thousands of service providers. Kristen, you've had experience in the welfare scheme, as we know. Let's look at the example of job network providers. Do you get any choice about which provider you go to to help you find work? 
I am very grateful to be free of those providers now. Um, people on the DSP up until the age of 35 are required in most cases to fulfil what are called mutual obligations, which are not mutual at all. Nothing is required to be provided in terms of support, meaningful support to those of us on payments. But people who are in that system, and when I've been in it in the past, know that it is a waste of time. You are the product. You don't get a choice. You are allocated to a job agency, and it is very difficult um, to be transferred, even if you are being abused. It's a system with very perverse incentives that have been designed and refined by government over two decades now, and it has gotten to the point where it's an absolute farce. We're looking at uh, around 80% of people who are on the job seeker payment have now been on it long term. And obviously, we often hear that these are not supposed to be payments that have to pay you well enough to live because you're not supposed to be on them very long. The average time on the job seeker payment is now six years. So people are trapped dealing with these job agencies, fulfilling requirements that actually hold them back from getting work based on uh, research that's been done. So you don't get choice. You are purely there to, to be a profit machine for both for profit and uh, what are described as non-profit organisations who are extracting wealth from us in this way. The term mutual obligation requirement sounds fair and reasonable, but as you point out, it becomes a sort of a vast piece of nonsense. Absolutely. And it's also based on the premise that people aren't contributing already. Hundreds of thousands of people on payments who are being forced to do these activities have caring responsibilities, whether that's for children or adults. One in five people on an unemployment payment is employed and the jobs are so bad that you don't earn enough to get off the poverty line and get out of the welfare system. People are doing all kinds of caring work for each other, for their families, for their communities and for the environment. I personally am not paid for the work that I do and the work that I do provides material support um, to my peers every day. So I think it's really, yeah, it's obscene what we've done. We've created a system that is designed to punish people, force people off welfare payments even when they have no other form of support available. Mark, in your research, did you find any examples of service providers that can deliver an individualised model? Indeed, there are examples, but, but as I hinted earlier, they tend to be up the upper end of the income bracket, so in, in areas like childcare or, or aged care, uh, there are very well-appointed facilities for people who can pay a significant premium over the, um, over the odds and still receive a government um, uh, subsidy for the place that they uh, that they take, by the way. But those really don't give us a, a true picture of the, uh, the the overall story. And you've got to you've got to see from the government's point of view that this is now quite a hard nut to crack. The infrastructure for many of these services, like like VET, um, is in private hands, and we need to figure out a way of how we would deal with those private providers to get them back in the tent to to run a service that that really is high quality. And I think there are ways we could do that. Mark, did you find uh, fraud in the system? There's fraud in all of these uh, cases. We've just seen recently that the Federal Police taken the lid off uh, a big fraud issue in the NDIS. Uh, the Employment Services case that, you, that you've uh, just been talking about has had repeated uh, shocks from fraudulent behaviour. VET is probably the worst case, more than a billion dollars worth of fraudulent activity in the, in the student loans uh, area. But I think as bad as that, and that's waste that we could be pulling out and using for better purposes, but I think almost as bad as that is 
what I'd call sort of misadventure for clients where the the government pays for them to receive a service, the provider um, gives them a minimal diet of, of uh, activity but they don't reach a satisfactory level of, of aged care or, or employment support or, or training. That sort of underservicing, if you, if you like, is the most endemic problem I think we have. So the spectrum goes from fraud to ineptitude. Exactly, and, and misadventure for the, for, for the clients, being bumped around, being left w- worried about what's going to happen next. I think the latest one that's, that has caused shockwaves, certainly in Victoria, is the, the privatisation of the Meals on Wheels service, where instead of having somebody you know come to the door with a warm meal, in many areas now you, you, you'll have a packet of frozen uh, meals dropped off at the door by an Uber service, and then it's up to you to uh, to take it from there. Now, that may be a very economically efficient way of delivering meals to a household, but it's not a high-quality service. Back to you, Kristen. It must be so hard for the vulnerable people and old and old people to navigate this uh, this Rubik's Cube. Absolutely. It took... Uh, 10 months for my disability support pension claim to be processed and that's not an outlier. In fact, it's better than it is for a lot of people and the systems are intimidating, they're distressing to engage with, um, they're exhausting and part of the reason it takes so long is because you need to put so much energy into trying to proactively engage with Centrelink because they are not resourced to do their job. But that is not, it's not just limited to people who are applying to get on payments. It's maintaining your payment, reporting income every fortnight, um, which requires you to engage with a very badly designed app um, or or a website that's often down. At the moment, we've just transitioned to somehow an even more dystopian version of employment services where people have to go and effectively do what is a social credit score and meet 100 points every month, which must be documented in a new website. So we've got, you know, a system that is really not achieving anything for anyone. As you mentioned, there are a lot of older people in the system facing age discrimination in the workforce who have health conditions that make it very hard to find a suitable and sustainable job. Um, And then trying to interact with these systems on top of that makes it even harder. And also to add that a lot of people on the job seeker payment cannot afford and don't have access either to internet or to an up-to-date device that makes this easy to interact with, even if you are technologically confident. Um, So there are so many barriers to dealing with the system and it causes, as I mentioned before, all of these things together cause a lot of people to drop out of the system altogether. Mark, there are implications not only for the people accessing the services of the market model, but also for workers in the same system, aren't they? Indeed. One one of the common uh, features of the Australian uh, uh, outsourcing or... or, um, contracted model is that in almost every case, the conditions of frontline staff, their pay, whether or not they're trained and their career structure have all gone downhill. And it looks pretty clear that the economic advantage to the service provider, the profit margin, if you like, is partly achieved by being efficient with what they get from from the government but is very largely due to what they shave out of the the, the employment of uh, cheaper people on on uh, much lower levels of qualification. And the, the rebound effect of that is that it's not only bad news for those 
people and it's it's been welcome to see arguments coming forward for improvements for childcare and, and uh, aged care workers and, and better pay. That That is obviously a, a, um, an overdue and, and valuable initiative. But on its own, that won't be enough because the role of those frontline staff also needs to be invested in with greater training and expertise so that they can perform a better service, a, a more innovative service, as well as one that is better compensated for them and their families. Surprise, surprise, commercial organisations are focused on commercial outcomes, not social outcomes, Mark. Indeed, and, and I don't think we should point the finger at the at all of the for-profits. Many of them are, are seeking to, to work in these industries in the rules that the government provides. I think it's a government problem. It's a government challenge. We, we, we need to figure out better ways of using expertise from these organisations but in a more transparent and uh, service quality oriented way. Christian, how does this uh, change in conditions for workers affect people on a disability? Yeah, I think um, one of the important things to highlight is that lots of people who are working in disability care are themselves underemployed and some of whom do also rely on social security payments themselves. So it's a pretty grim state of affairs. What it means is often, um, for example, in my own case, I try as hard as possible to access supports that are not actually disability providers and I hide my disability from them because I'm fortunate to be able to do that because I think that it ultimately means I get treated better. I don't think that that means... You get treated better by hiding your disability. Well, yes, and I think part of the problem is that many workers are under so much strain and there is so much demand placed on them and they are in very difficult working conditions that they don't really have the time and capacity to offer the care that is best for people who need it. But it also is a product of the fact that when you are trying to extract profit from the care sector, you will always have a situation where people are being pushed beyond what they can offer. And I I don't think that will change if we continue to privatise this, and I don't think there is a difference, a big difference or a meaningful difference between for-profit and non-profit providers. Lots of people like me have had horror experiences with both so-called community sector and charity organisations and with those pure for-profit private organisations. So it's bad for workers and it's bad for us. um, And I don't feel very optimistic about it changing, but, you know, I think whether we're talking about direct disability supports or whether we're talking about employment services. I mean, the easiest way at the moment to improve employment services quality would simply to be to make participation voluntary. But even with things like disability supports, where theoretically I do have choice, I am managing my choices in a way to sort of minimise the harm to myself rather than really feeling that I have genuine options available. Christian, you're describing a a dystopia. Was it made worse, more chaotic by COVID? I'm very lucky that I don't have a disability that made me particularly vulnerable to COVID. All of the folks who I work with and support, disabled people and otherwise, have found a lot of extra strain in their life um, trying to survive in poverty and trying to manage their uh, chronic health conditions and disabilities as a result of COVID. I mean, throwing all of the um, protections out the door to try and minimise the spread of COVID means that lots of people I support now are effectively even more aggressively isolated because they are too afraid to leave the house. And throughout the pandemic, we have seen, you know, a situation where people have continued to be punished for unemployment. 
we have had, you know, lots of people had limited access to their disability supports that they needed because of the various restrictions that were in place and the failure to make effective alternative arrangements for people. The coalition government did not work effectively with the um, disability advocacy community. But you know what? There's one other view, and, and that is that a lot of people who were long-term unemployed on the job seeker payment in 2020 said it was the best year of their life. And I think that really exposes just how grim the state of things is for people on payments is about half the poverty line. The voice of uh, Christian O'Connell, research and policy advocate, anti-poverty centre. My other guests are Daniel Molino, MP and author of Safety Net, The Future of Welfare in Australia, and Mark Considine, Professor of Political Science at the University of Melbourne, and Mark's the author of The Careless State, Reforming Australia's Social Services. Mark, you say we're approaching a high point of dissatisfaction with the way governments are managing many social services, but there's been a lack in any new big ideas. It's interesting, isn't it, that that we could have had as many royal commissions and productivity commission inquiries and the like over the last five or six years and we haven't broken through with yet with a, a new model or a significantly improved model. I think that may come. I think there is a groundswell across a number of these services indicating that, it, that it's time for a rethink. And I think part of that is that the public have now become alarmed about what's happening in things like the aged care sector and and in disability. That There's a degree of debate about the NDIS, which I think everybody welcomed as a major initiative and has now been subjected to quite a bit of critique and attack. I think this is building a momentum to say to governments, time for um, some adjustments to these uh, arrangements, to to experiment with some different ways of doing it, including, you know, thinking about the experience that clients have when they're inside these services and and not allow them to be invisible and uh, beyond the reach of of, uh, support until something dreadful happens. I think that's the... That transparency kind of priority, I think, is the one that I think would would carry government towards a a much better model. Enter stage left, uh, Daniel Molino. Before I ask you about your big idea, do you want to respond to what you've heard from uh, Mark and Kristen? Uh, Well, look, can I just um, acknowledge a lot of the points that uh, Mark has made in relation to the marketisation and privatisation of services. I, I, in a previous life, uh, researched in behavioural economics, and I'm very conscious that, look, there's a limit to how much information people can process. And often we've set up incredibly complicated markets with far too many choices. I think quite often we've tried to evaluate the performance of providers in a way that hasn't necessarily always been that meaningful. And I think there are a range of governance issues. So uh, I, I acknowledge a lot of those issues. And I think that if we are going to go down the path of trying to give people choice, we need to think about how to do it in a way that is probably uh, simpler and, and more closely managed by uh, government. And um, a lot of the points that uh, Kristen raises, I think, are things that our government's going to have to look directly at. And I'm on a select committee which is going to be looking at Workforce Australia. Uh, it's a really uh, exciting opportunity from a policy 
perspective and, and in terms of just getting an area that I don't think is working well uh, to function better for people that are in a difficult situation, uh, that's going to report in around a year. And I think the fact that it's a select committee which is going to be reporting directly to the minister, I think, is, is really important. You say that the emphasis on the delivery of services rather than the focus on the attainment of long-term outcomes is an issue. Yes, I think sometimes, uh, as I mentioned earlier, a universal service is the right approach. So if if you want to vaccinate a population, exactly the right approach. I think in many areas, universal service delivery is correct. But if we're talking about people who are very vulnerable, people with very complex needs, I actually feel that the insurance frame is better, partly because the whole notion of an insurance arrangement is that somebody suffers loss or suffers difficulty and that either in a private insurance contract or a social insurance contract, you define an agreed outcome that you're trying to achieve uh, for that person. So I think it prods a greater emphasis on insurance would prod government to more clearly defining outcomes for individuals. I think it would also... Daniel, uh, aren't, aren't you being a bit of a heretic here? Because your book is proposing to rejig the welfare statement to be more like the insurance model, which I understand was argued for by conservatives historically. Well, I think it's been argued on both sides of politics. I suppose... Uh, uh, Otto von Bismarck was a conservative, so in, in the 1890s Germany. But, you know, FDR, in one of, I, I think, a, the US's greatest uh, public policy achievements, the old age survivors and disability insurance scheme, which was the centrepiece of the New Deal, in my opinion, that was a, a huge intergenerational insurance scheme. Clement Attlee's post-World War II welfare state was built around national insurance as outlined by the visionary beverage. So uh, national insurance has really been something that both sides have championed. And indeed in Australia in the 1920s and 30s, social insurance was the great climate change issue of the day. Uh, What was really at stake was not whether people supported social insurance, but how it was to be funded with Labor supporting it through progressive income taxes uh, and uh, the non-Labor parties supporting funding through uh, risk-rated premiums. But I think social insurance is something that uh, has generally been supported across all uh, major parties, both in Australia and other countries. The piggy bank analogy, talk to that. Yeah, so look, I think here we can talk about, for example, uh, one of the major uh, elements of the welfare state, which is the retirement income support system. This is one area where, by and large, it is working fairly well, not perfect. But here we have in Australia a multi-pillar approach, if you will, where we have the public pension, we have mandated private savings and voluntary private savings. And this is a system that the World Bank supported in the uh, mid-1990s as a model. And right to this day, Australia's retirement income support system is seen by many as world leading. And this reflects the fact that when it comes to uh, a lot of uh, intergenerational risks, the government has to step in and manage resources across generations. So what we find with our retirement income support, for example, is that through the age pension, uh, we have payments from one generation to another, which is by far the best way to manage risks like longevity risk and inflation risk. And then we have a mandated private saving pillar, which is our superannuation system, which is a good way to take pressure off our pension system as society ages. Uh, So that piggy bank model, which Nicholas Barr, for example, at the London School of Economics has talked about a lot, is a key element of the welfare state. 
Kristen, how how do you respond in brief and in broad to Daniel's ideas? I mean, I feel like superannuation is really failing people um, who spend their life on low incomes and particularly women who may be discriminated in, against in the workforce, other people who are heavily discriminated against, whether it's disabled folks, black folks, trans folks. So we don't find that we get to the end of um, our working age life to have any option other than the age pension, which is keeping and forcing a lot of people to try and survive in poverty. And increasingly, we have no prospect of being able to secure a home that means we can maybe try to survive on the pension. And I think we need to be very wary of insurance because it has been a disaster in places like the United States. I think that Daniel spoke earlier about universal services, and I think we need to think more universally about financial supports as well and not move away from what we have, but make what we have better. There are really complex challenges in some of the services we've discussed, like aged care. There are no easy solutions there, but there is some very low-hanging fruit um, when it comes to our social security payments. If we don't keep people in poverty, they're better equipped to work. Keeping in mind that unemployment is a choice made by politicians. It is designed into the system. So we're being penalised for being locked out of a labour market that doesn't want every person to have a job anyway. So I think ultimately the community expects everyone to be able to afford the basics and that I don't know what the point of government is if not to ensure the welfare of everyone in the country and to use redistribution to achieve that. Um, Mark, I think Mark, we can do, do it you... and we saw that in 2020 when we had the COVID supplement in place. Sorry. Mark, do you find... Daniel's suggestions inspirational or dangerous? No, I think the the argument for insurance for for pooling risks in the community is absolutely compelling. The devil, of course, is is in the detail. And if you take uh, retirement incomes, and and let me take a another example, a, a different country, so Sweden for many years had a national contributory and publicly supported uh, retirement income system, a pension system. And every year, I think it was in September, people would receive uh, what was known as the yellow envelope. And that would arrive from government and to tell you what your credits were and what the government had put in and and how you were going. And after a while, uh, the pro-market lobby said, look, there ought to be more choice and competition. So people were asked through the the yellow envelope to move their money around to different risk categories, to different forms of, of, uh, of saving. They discovered that nearly 60% of the people weren't even opening the envelope. So when we decide we want to drive innovation through competitive alternatives and ask people to make complicated choices about where to put their money and which form of risk is the one they want to entertain, we better be ready to support them very actively in, in making sure the information they get and the consumer advocacy that sits around that prevents people ripping them off because that's surely what will otherwise happen. Are there other big ideas perhaps, and I'm thinking of something we used to discuss quite often on the program, a universal basic income? Yes, I think we're close to that debate now in a number of countries with tax credit systems that that first of all give people great incentives to to work and and to um, build a, an income stream, I think where we need where Australia needs to to do more is is in the rather miserable level at which the uh, the public assistance cuts in for most people, and frankly, I think in in the employment sector we, we need to do more to 
to mix and taper the public support with the perhaps small amounts of paid work that people are getting, the non-paid work that they're doing in areas that we want them to be active supporting elders in the community or, or looking after kids. We need to get better at envisioning a form of a high basic level of income that could be made up from several different buckets. Daniel, you are, of course, a member of the Labor government. You'll be handing down your budget at the end of the month. And as I mentioned at the beginning, there's clearly a need to find more revenue to pay for the increasing demands on our services. Yet the government is still going ahead with its stage three tax cuts. Now, overnight, we saw the Trust government back down on their proposal for tax cuts for the rich. Will you recommend the same? Well, I think the uh, another issue with the trust tax cuts, quite apart from the cuts themselves, was that it was uh, at a, a very unhelpful time where you've got the uh, uh, central bank using monetary policy to try and control inflation and then you've got a massive stimulus coming in at exactly the wrong time. It was also unmodelled, which I think spooked the markets in a very profound way. But to the broader point you're making, Philip, look, it is, a, it is an important issue. I think as a number of people have pointed out from the government, look, this was something that we took to the election and were very clear about. And I think people in the community expect governments uh, to uh, follow through on issues, particularly where they were front and centre in elections. And the other issue with the the tax cuts that are being discussed in Australia is that they're actually not going to come into play for a couple of budgets. So I think, understandably, the government is really focusing on what can we do about uh, the cost of living, um, what can we do about making sure that fiscal and monetary policy are aligned in this October budget and the May budget coming up, and that, that really needs to be the focus. Will your government raise... Uh will raise the unemployment rate, which is clearly inadequate? Well, look, it's not for me to obviously announce anything. I'm not sitting in ERC decisions, and I suppose even the people sitting in there aren't announcing anything. But I think the government has made it clear that this is a budget that is uh, out of cycle, if you will. Uh, We are using this uh, immediately after the election to rejig the budget settings in light of the fact that international circumstances are changing, but also to reflect a few of our key election promises. So I think that's really the emphasis of this budget. What I think people have said, uh, senior members of the government have said, and I think rightly, and this is the right approach, is that following this budget in each of the May budgets following, uh, we will review job seeker and other payments. Uh, and uh, look, I think it's fair to say that this government is going to be more sympathetic and open to raising them than I suspect the previous one was. Thank you, lady and gentlemen. Thank you, Christian O'Connell, research and policy advocate at the Anti-Poverty Centre. Thank you, Daniel Molino, MP and author of Safety Net, The Future of Welfare in Australia, published by La Trobe University Press in conjunction with Black Ink Books. And thank you, Mark. Mark Considine, Professor of Political Science at the University of Melbourne and author of The Careless State, Reforming Australia's Social Services, published by Melbourne University Press. Tomorrow we will stay on an economics theme because Ian Dunt, I'm sure, will want to vent about the rupture trust. See you then. G'day, potties. Despite being a lifelong sceptic and atheist, I 
don't seem to get enough of the topic of religion. And when I want more, I download the Religion and Ethics Report with Andrew West. You can find it on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts, and it comes with an atheist's blessing.